Hello, and welcome to The Ethicists, a new podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, a novelist and the writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions that the Times Magazine readers send in every week. Let me introduce my co-hosts. Jack Schaefer, media writer for Politico, talking to us from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Jack. I am so ready to get ethical. (laughs) I'm so glad. And Kenji Yoshino, a law professor at NYU, talking to us from downtown New York. Hi, Kenji. Hi, Amy. I just started your novel, Lucky Us, so brilliant. Best two opening sentences ever. Oh, thank you very much. So coming up, we'll take a look at some classical ethical dilemmas. But first, we're going to look into our email inbox and take a look at our very first question by someone who is concerned, more than most of us are, about doing the right thing. I had some work done on my home by a contractor. He didn't bill me. I called the company, asked for the bill, and offered to pay on the spot with my credit card number. The person answering the phone declined and said that he would tell the owner of the business who would get back to me. No one did. How many times should I ask a company to be billed? Signed, N.M. Columbus, Ohio. I certainly appreciate the effort on the part of this person. Jack, what do you think about being ethical with this? Well, I think this person's probably a knucklehead. If being ethical is doing the right thing in order to be a better person, I think in this case you keep on trying to pay the bill. From looking at this letter closely, it appears that the uh, letter writer only tried to pay the bill once with a phone call and seems to have gotten somebody at the office who's not prepared to take the payment. Trying to pay your bill once doesn't uh, absolve you of the responsibility to pay your bill. So I would say you keep on doing this for uh, weeks. You do it for months. You imagine if you were the contractor and how you would want your customers to hold up their end of the bargain by paying their bill. Well, I think that is a high bar of ethical (laughs) behavior, and I'm really interested to see what Kenji has to say about it. Kenji's feeling like a terrible person right now uh, because I had a very different intuition about this question uh, in that I I should say at the outset that nothing that I say on this show is given in terms of legal advice, but I did take (laughs) a kind of legalistic uh, approach to this in the sense of I've signed lots of contracts that have said, you know, if you don't invoice us, you know, for this lecture that you're giving or whatever within 90 days, like we don't have to pay you, right? So it strikes me that the responsibility for invoicing is on the part of the contractor. And so the letter writer probably has the obligation to write to the owner of the business directly and say, look, I tried to pay this bill, but you need to invoice me. But the, the reason I feel like a bad person is that most of my intuition comes from, I don't want this contractor to come back and say, you didn't pay this. You have no proof that you tried to pay it. And now we're going to slap you up with a bunch of interest. So I was thinking more defensively on the part of the letter writer. I think that the ethical duty lies with the contractor to invoice properly. It seems to me that the ethical duty, as is usually the case for us, would lie with both people. I think the contractor who doesn't send you an invoice is going to be going out of business and is also not living up to their ethical responsibility because I have certainly signed contracts in which it's very clear that my obligation is to send in an invoice and until the invoice is received, nobody has any intention of paying me. I do feel like Jack's idea that you would make the phone call weekly and even monthly until they finally send you an invoice seems to me to be beyond an ethical obligation. 
I feel like my ethical obligation if I was using these contractor services both to be ethical and also to defend myself would be to definitely send an email or even a certified letter to the company saying, I would like to pay your bill. I have not received an invoice because I would assume that sooner or later the contractor will get around to sending the bill and it would certainly be unfortunate if they had added interest. But even so, what if I didn't have that much money in my account anymore and I still would have to pay the bill even if it's nine months later? I don't think that there's a sort of statute of limitations on bill paying in this case unless it says so in the contract. So I see that we have differing stances on this. I don't know, guys. Thumbs up, thumbs down. What do you say? Boy, when I become a contractor, I will never do work for either one of you guys. <laughs> Nor should you. Nor should you. You seem like deadbeats. You seem like <laughs> bill evaders. Uh, I'm totally with Kenji about the about the, the legal um, issue. That's pretty easily wrapped up and resolved. But this is not a courtroom proceeding. We're right. asking here what is the ethical thing to do. Imagine if the person who answered the phone was the janitor just picked up the phone, said, nah, I can't take that information, didn't identify themselves as a janitor. I don't think that it's ethical to accept the goods or services from somebody, promise to pay the bill, and based on calling once for a bill and not getting it, that it's ethical for you to say, hey, I've done my part, I've done my legal part, it's up to them to bill me. I differ with both of you. Yeah, we are so far now two terrible people in the ethical hole and... Jack is so far way ahead as the ethical human being. I um, hope to lord it over you for months. Yes, Mr. I hope you. Do, I hope you do. But let's see. Let's see how you do with our next question, which is um, a difference of opinion between a husband and a wife, and which one of them is ethically correct. My wife and I ate at a restaurant we both liked when my son was in town. She paid with her American Express card, and a couple of days later we found her card was being fraudulently used at a local night spot. A couple of weeks later we visited that same restaurant, but this time I paid with a credit card I use infrequently. Within two days I was notified the card was being used for a flight from London to Lagos, Nigeria. I felt sure an employee of that restaurant had, for a second time, copied my card and sold it on the internet. I felt obligated to call the restaurant owner to inform him of my suspicions, but my wife vehemently disagreed, saying I had no proof, we'd lost no money, and my accusations would unnecessarily cause disruptions. Who is ethically correct? Signed, M.E., Kennesaw, Georgia. So I would turn that one over for starters to Kenji. Yeah, I actually thought this was a tough one. I think the thing that I immediately wanted to take off the table was the wife's claim that they were not being hurt financially, because even if they're not being hurt, that can't be the only metric of analysis, given that the credit card company is you know, out of pocket for insuring them. Other patrons at the restaurant, if, she, if the husband is right, would be hurt. But on the other hand, you know, I ultimately ended up siding with her view that he shouldn't call because I felt like what he was doing was saying, okay, this happened twice on two different credit cards, and then simply because they had been at the same restaurant, I'm going to now report this. It doesn't seem to me that he's eliminating other explanations at the 
risk of throwing scurrilous accusations. I noticed that there's a son here, you know, who's present, <laughs> at least on the first occasion, and there's a nightclub expense. So uh, who knows? So I just want to make sure that he was doing a little bit more. If I were in his position and I wanted to hammer it down, what I would do is to go to the restaurant a third time and use a, a different credit card and to see if that was really the case. Or alternatively, demonstrate, at least to us, that a little bit more diligence was done with regard to saying, I looked at these two credit cards, and this was the only place in which both of them were used. Well, I like the idea that a little more diligent detecting is called for. It was a very Holmesian response. What was your thought, Jack? Well, credit card fraud at restaurants is as common as cockroaches. This happens frequently, and sometimes it's the wait staff. Sometimes it's somebody who digs out receipts from the dumpster. Sometimes it's the owner. In this case, we don't know. We just know that a crime has been committed twice, and our letter writers think that it's an ethical question here about whether they report the crime. I'm sure this isn't the first time this has ever happened to the owner of the restaurant. I would go directly to the owner of the restaurant and say, hey, in the last two occasions we've come here, uh, we've, uh, our, our credit card has uh, been used in a fraudulent manner. And what do you, has, is that common? Has that happened here before? And if you don't get satisfaction there, I would go to the police. But I would not worry about causing a scene. Um, I'm also taking this position because Kenji's on the other side. Um, I, always <laughs> I always know where I belong when he goes first. Um, <laughs> so I would directly uh, talk to the restaurant owner. It's not like a restaurant owner has not seen uh, this sort of behavior before and that it, he's a naive person. He might have a good explanation. Yeah, we, we had a waiter who we just bounced for doing exactly that thing. So I would be direct about it. So I have two questions for Amy. One is when you said Holmesian, Amy, did you mean uh, Sherlock or did you mean Oliver Wendell? <laughs> Alas, I only meant Sherlock this time. <laughs> and then second, what did you think? What do you think about this? Well, you know, I think the wife's claims are, are not ones. I don't see the wife's stance as ethically correct. As, as you said, I think we have no proof, we'd lost no money, and my accusations would be disruptive. I don't give those a whole lot of weight. I certainly agree with Jack that this happens quite frequently. I'm also, I have to say, inclined to agree with Jack that probably if I liked this restaurant and I like the restaurant owner because it is truly doing him no favors to have this happening at his place, I would probably, rather than make an accusation, present the information. This happened on these two dates, and I have strong reason to believe it was in your restaurant. I think Kenji's approach was like, if you really think there's a problem, try it with a third card. You know, might certainly give us more definitive evidence. I got to say, maybe I am coming under the heading of the lazy ethicist, which I guess is no kind of ethicist at all. I would be unlikely to use the third card. I would be likely to go to the restaurant and say... I like this restaurant. I like you. This problem has occurred, and I wanted you to know about it. Occam's Razor would say, next time, pay cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pay cash is, always, is, is often a good idea, but no doubt that will lead to other sorts of dilemmas that people might write in with. So where do we stand, guys? Um, I think we have a deep difference between where Jack and I see it going, which is um, having a polite and clear non-accusatory, these are my words, not Jack's, conversation with the restaurant owner and Kenji of saying, um, 
not enough proof. If you care about it that much, test the hypothesis. Yeah, I guess the reason I resist is I think about it from the perspective of the people who work in the restaurant. So once an allegation like this is made, it casts a cloud, particularly on the server, right, who may or may not be the culprit, as you indicated. So, And then really over all of the people who work in the restaurant who have access to this, when it might not be the restaurant at all. So something like this is a pretty serious allegation to be throwing at somebody without you know, really being sure. So if this were, if I were in the position of the husband in this case, I would want to be really sure before I put another individual this time thinking about the wait staff in that position. There you go. I agree with the wife, but not for her reasons. <laughs> you're, you're weak, very weak, Kenji. <laughs> very weak. I think we've already established that I'm, 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 I'm weak and I'm, I'm, I'm ethically and, and challenged. Terrible. And terrible. Weak and yeah. terrible. Yes. And one last note. All the workers in the rest- restaurant might be completely innocent. This could have been, you know, all the credit card numbers are being compromised at the wire level. There's some sort of uh, cyber fraud going on. So it would benefit this uh, restaurant owner to know that there's some sort of security problem and for him not to lose any customers over it and for this thing to be resolved. Well, I think we're going to, as is often the case, agree to disagree. And now we tackle a classic ethical dilemma, classic in the sense of more common than you would think. You're attending the wedding of your best friend. Right before the ceremony, you see your friend's fiancé sneaking out of a bedroom with someone who is definitely not your best friend. Both people are disheveled and looking suspicious and sneaky. Do you tell your friend what you saw? Amy, I think you take the first crack at this one. (laughs) Okay, well, I guess I should because I'm the person who said this is much more common than you think, by which I meant it has happened to me twice. It must be about the kinds of weddings I go to. (laughs) Um, I think that, well, you know, you hate to see it. You wish you didn't see it. You wish you could have unseen it. On the other hand, if it is truly your best friend, by which I don't mean some girl you went to college with 20 years ago and have warm feelings towards, but truly your best friend, I would have to tell my best friend. And I understand that disheveled could mean a lot of things, but I'm going to say in this case, I don't think the question means badly buttoned up. I think it means people who look like they have been romping on the bed. Shortly before the ceremony cannot be a good sign. And I would probably say to my best friend, Honey, I am so sorry. I need to tell you what I saw. And if your response to this is to tell me to shut up and sit down, so be it. What do you guys think? I'm 100% in agreement with that. You know, it's the smacks of, you know, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. But at my kids' preschool, they say, when somebody tattles on, when one kid tattles on another, the teacher always very wisely, I think, asks, are you trying to get that person into trouble or are you trying to get them out of trouble, Right. And, oh, that is a nice question. Yeah, and I think that in this case, you may not be trying to get the best friend's fiancé out of trouble, uh, but you're trying to get the best friend out of trouble. And this is not an arm's length transaction, right? This is somebody who is your best friend. So the question is whether or not you know you could live with yourself having that knowledge and 
being able to protect your uh, your best friend from harm. On the other hand, you know, you could go to your best friend and divulge this, and the best friend could say, I have no problem with this. Or your best friend could say there's a perfectly innocent explanation for this. So, um, Oh, yeah, there are lots of things that the best friend could say, all of which are in the service of let the wedding go on and shut up. And that's fine. Then they will have done what they wish to do. It's also possible that a friend will end the friendship over it. I would like to think that the best friend would not, but, you know, human beings are a mystery. What do you think, Jack? I wonder if it matters that it's um, so close to the wedding day, if this were to ha- have happened a week before, a month before, or even a week or month after the wedding, whether you guys would have the sa- take the same position, that would you rat them out if this if you'd observe this behavior a week or a month before the wedding or a week or a month after the wedding, I don't know that I would be so quick to intervene into somebody else's relationship. I think the thing that makes it different for me in terms of before or after the wedding is that, you know, the marriage is a commitment of, you know, fidelity. So uh, among other things, unless, of course, a couple is conceiving of it differently. But, you know, traditionally, marriage has been understood to mean monogamous relationships. And so if you tell your best friend that this occurred, then that might call into question whether or not the fiancé is viewing the relationship in the same way before they make a vow to each other. So for me, it's not so much is it too close to the wedding or is it too far away from the wedding in terms of the disruption it would cause. It's purely uh, ex-ante, ex-post thing. Is it before you make the vow or is it after you make the vow, right? Because once you make the vow, it's kind of, it's too late. So you're, you're trying to prevent these vows from being made under false pretenses. So would you um, inform your friend three months after uh, the wedding that, uh, hey, you have an inkling that there's another mule kicking in the stall? That's a harder question, but I st- it's, for me, so I would, I would uh, feel less confident in my answer. But I... If it were my best friend, yes. Right. The timing is not insignificant. And frankly, if I were getting married, I would hope that the person that I was about to be married to was thinking about me and looking forward to the ceremony or thinking about what they might be saying or looking forward to the shrimp cocktail, but being in some way engaged with the fact that we are about to be married. Because even if it's true that love is not a pie, it is definitely true that In any relationship, there is only so much energy, only so much time, and only so much thought. Amy, uh, you seem to have some personal knowledge about this. Uh, What Can you tell us more? I I can't tell you more. Thank you for asking. One of them, I have to say, was not the wedding of my best friend. One of them was a wedding that I was a guest at, and um, before people walked down the aisle, I saw a completely stricken-looking member of the groom's family grab the groom and pull him aside. And it turned out the story was that she had indeed encountered not even something as suspicious as dishevelment, but actually walked into the wrong room at the wrong time and came upon the bride-to-be and a groomsman. And she did, in fact, report that to the groom. They did not get. They did not go through with the ceremony. It was canceled. Gifts were returned. Uh, they went on to marry other people, and as far as I know, have been reasonably content. By which I mean not divorced. I was also <laughs> at a wedding with a much closer friend, and um, there was a series of 
really bad behaviors on the part of the groom, none of which the bride was in the room for. And I knew my friend very well, and I was quite sure from everything she had said that this was not how she saw him. And so what I did was said, listen, I could be way out of line, and you can just tell me to shut up at any point. Here's what I saw, and it was a concern to me. And my friend said, oh, my God, um, I need to talk to him. And they delayed the wedding a couple of hours, and they had what I gather both people felt was a good and productive, frank and candid exchange of views, and they went ahead and got married. All right, so there we have it, weddings, the natural human impulse, and what do you owe to your best friend? So ultimately, guys, where do each of you come out? She should mention it or he should mention what has been seen. Again, not necessarily drawing conclusions or say nothing about it at all. Definitely convey the information, but everything turns for me on the best friend idea. Okay. And for you, Jack? Mom's the word. It's their problem, not mine. Good to know. Good to know both for weddings and for friendships. Okay, guys, our final question about a crying baby. The couple downstairs has started letting their baby cry it out. Having no kids myself, I don't know if this is a valid parenting strategy. What I do know is that it has kept me up for an hour at 2 a.m. last night and has woken me up several times this week. Is it within my rights to talk to them about it? Signed, JB, Brooklyn, New York. Well, I love that the only ethical question we are being asked to answer is, is it within my rights to talk to them about it? Which strikes me as a very sweet approach. What do you think, Jack? Is it in, within that person's rights to talk to the couple about their crying baby? Yes, I think it's fine to approach them. But I want to know how the letter writer knows that the parents are letting the baby cry it out. That indicates to me that they've already talked to them. Babies cry all the time. It's the natural state of a baby to cry. The baby is not crying. You probably know that the baby is quite ill. So if they've already had a discussion, I would say advance that discussion. If they haven't had a discussion, I would approach them very gingerly, perhaps bring a gift for the baby, knock on the door and say, oh, I hear your baby's been very, um, has had trouble sleeping, and I thought that this little cuddly might help. People are suckers when you give their babies a present. It doesn't matter what it is. You could give them a 10-pound anvil, and they would just beam because people like their uh, you to pay attention to their babies. So I would approach them directly and say, anything I can do to help. I think that's very nice, and I have to say extremely unhanging judge-like. What do you think, Kenji? Yeah, I'm basically on the same page. I, I, I was troubled by different parts of this letter from the part that troubled Jack. I was troubled by uh, having no kids myself. I don't know if this is a valid parenting strategy because I feel like if you really care about this, then just you know use the Google and figure out that this is a very common and valid method. A lot of people do this. And the other thing that troubled me was about the letter writer not to pile on was uh, this has kept me up for an hour last night and has woken me up several times this week. So has... How long has this been going on exactly, right? So uh, if this is just a matter of, you know, a week or two while this child learns to self-soothe, that's one thing. 
but it uh, looks like it's going to be a, a colicky stretch of months and months. That might be a different thing. So I guess I, again, am left wondering whether or not this person has done his or her diligence with regard to, to this. All of that said, I love the way that Jack put it, which is that you can't unplug a baby, as I, as I know from sad experience. So this is not like a loud stereotype. I don't mean that I want to go around unplugging babies, you know what I mean. Um, it, it, this is the idea that, you know, when a baby is crying, there's very little that you can do to stop it. And so this is not like an act of inconsideration or lack of consideration or ill will, you know, like loud stereo playing at 2 a.m. in the morning. So, you know, there's a kind of ought implies can thing uh, here, which is to say, I can't change it, you know, so therefore it's weird to ask me to, to force me to change it. But all that said, it may be that these neighbors who are ferberizing their baby don't know. So Jack's approach would be a beautiful way to open up the conversation, you know, not uh, do it in a finger wagging way, but do it in a congratulations on your baby, you know, is, you know, can I give you this little gift? And, you know, it seems like you're having a hard time. That puts them on enough notice that if there is some kind of self-help that they can engage in, like, say, moving the crib to a different room or something that you can work out together, that there might be a, a very easy, happy solution here that, uh, because both sides are being so fastidious, uh, might not be reachable otherwise, except for through this kind of, of conversation. I don't want to be tagged with being a softy on this one. Um, I would like to talk about what the second option would be, is if the gift and the direct confrontation or approach doesn't work, call the landlord and complain. You have a right to uh, tell your uh, neighbors that they have an ethical responsibility to you as a neighbor to control the noise, uh, whether it's a baby or uh, if they have a rock band playing in their um, apartment at uh, 2 a.m. I would escalate, but I would escalate slowly. I think the op- option of escalation is always there. I also suggest that since the letter writer describes the couple downstairs, it's hard for me to imagine that the person upstairs has never made a lot of noise that has bothered the people downstairs. You know, and this is the way in which the ethical responsibility goes both ways. But I don't think you can go wrong going downstairs with a little gift and saying, congratulations on the new baby. You may not realize this, but... I do actually hear the baby and did hear the baby at this time and this time. And this time, I wonder if there's any way uh, that we could make this better. And it certainly seems possible to me that the solution is move the crib and get a pair of earplugs. If that doesn't work, if you're in for a stretch of colic, um, you have to decide what kind of neighbor you want to be. Because frankly, even if you go to the landlord I'm not sure the landlord can make people move because they have a colicky baby. So I'm not sure where that's going to get you in the end, except, of course, making your downstairs neighbors feel very distressed towards you and probably very quick to pick up the phone when you are thumping around in your Cuban-heeled boots. So what do you think, guys? In the end, the simple question was, is it within my rights to talk to them about it? So absolutely, yes. But uh, in some ways, I think what we're all saying is that uh, this could either go really, really badly or really, really well. Uh, So you could either make friends for life uh, if you approach it in the way that uh, you and Jack, Amy and Jack, have articulated it, or it could go really, really badly if you frame it as a question of this is a noise disturbance, like, you know, playing your stereo too loudly and, you know, you must stop. We agree. Speak softly and carry a stuffed animal. 
Well, speak softly and carry an even softer animal, right? And that's it for episode one of The Ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicist at nytimes.com. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend. If you don't like the show, why not tell us? And by all means, subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. For Jack Schaefer and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom, and we'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists. 